Oh, okay. <laughs> You're listening, listening to Hold That Thought. From Arts and Sciences at Washington University in St. Louis. Thanks for listening to Hold That Thought. I'm Rebecca King, and this late in October, so close to Halloween, it's really not hard to find witches about. You can find them flying on broomsticks from neighborhood trees, or grinning at you with green skin and pointed hats over bubbling cauldrons. But today, Gerhild Williams, a professor of comparative literature and Germanic languages and cultures, takes us back to early modern Europe when the witch trials spread like wildfire from 1480 to 1750. Back then, witches weren't marked with green skin or a high-pitched cackle. Instead, they were your neighbor, your aunt, or maybe even your mother. Today's podcast will be broken down into three parts. For the first part, we'll talk about what a witch is and the roots of these beliefs. In part two, we'll look at how witches were treated and the laws made to deal with them. Finally, in part three, we'll step back to look at how the witch frenzy spread and what made Europe so vulnerable at that time. Witches are poisoners, are demons, they are magicians, they are evildoers. Maleficia is called an evildoer. In the 15th, 16th, 17th century, we have about 80,000 women accused of witchcraft. 80,000. To put this in perspective, in the Salem witch trials, only 20 people died. Granted, that was 20 people in about a year, not over three centuries. If you consider that a small village in Germany had maybe five families, and if all the women were executed for witchcraft, and which happened, in fact, you see what you have. 80% of those accused of witchcraft were women. They were, in the beginning especially, older, usually without family support, and sometimes they were healers, sometimes they were midwives, not always, but what they seem to share is being older, marginalized, and obviously women. Why women? Well, the roots of associating women with magic and witchcraft ran deep in the culture of Europe in the 15th, 16th, and 17th century. Witches appear very early in our literature and culture, and here I'm talking especially European, Judeo-Christian religion and culture. In Genesis, for example, it is said that God created mankind in his image, and he gave Adam a wife, and one of the wives was Lilith, not Eve. And Lilith has all the characteristics of later witches. She hunted children. It was said that she lived off blood of the children. So there's an image already in the very early part of the Old Testament where the woman as a witch appears. And of course, Eve then gives in to the devil when he says, why don't you eat this apple and you'll know everything. And there's also a satanic witch kind of image associated with her leading the virtuous man astray. The other one is an appearance in the book of Samuel where the witch of Endor is asked to summon prophet Samuel and he appears and the discussion goes all through the Middle Ages and early modern period. Do the witches really have power to change things or do they just create illusions? Do they just make our eyes see something or not see something? Or, or do they really affect changes in matter? 
In Deuteronomy, also in the Old Testament, there is a sentence that is quoted in many, many of the books about witchcraft, which are called demonologies. It says, thou shalt not suffer the witch to live. That's the quote. Aside from original sin, certain gender stereotypes reinforced the idea that women were more susceptible than men to the devil and to witchcraft. The other one that comes back time and time and time again is that women's physical and emotional weaknesses, their sexual predilections, their unmanageable sexual desires, made them especially prone to enter into a pact with the devil because that was always associated with really crazy sex. And I mean, there are some descriptions that one couldn't put in prime time. Many of the best and brightest scholars in this period spent a lot of time thinking and writing about witches, and they wrote thick tomes on the science of witchcraft called demonology. These scholars used their worldview, as steeped in Christian mythology as they were, to explain why witches existed. The idea of a witch is basic in a cosmos that is enlivened with spiritual, magical, occult, dark powers. And if you look at the Christian universe, that's exactly what it is. You have the angels, and you have the demons, and you have the various humans that associate with one or the other. For example, if you look at the cosmos as being full of occult powers, God doing all sorts of things to us, well, the devil is also doing a lot of things to us. So whoever is dealing with the good occult powers, the ones that go to God, those are dealing with white magic. The ones that are dealing with bad occult powers are dealing with Satan. Now, Satan can never do anything without the permission of God. Satan is not an independent power in this universe, but he is a power because of the fall of man. This is very important because the question came up repeatedly, as it does today, why do bad things happen to good people, and why do these horrible things happen to these women? And after you go through all the arguments, the end one was always, it is happening with the permission of God. God permits this because mankind, womankind, has sinned. So now we have the background for the belief in witches. But what were these women being accused of? What did witches do? How does one become a witch? They enter into a contract with the devil. And the contract mimics a lot of what people do when they get baptized. For example, the devil may baptize the witch with urine. As they enter into the contract, it is said that the witch kisses the devil's behind, and that's like kissing the ring of the bishop. The witches then, once they have a contract with the devil, are empowered to fly to the Sabbath. They do that in a number of ways, backwards on a billy goat, which is an image of the devil, putting salve or ointment on themselves that is a concoction out of dead children and uh, all kinds of unspeakable things, excrement and all that. At the Sabbath, men and women engage in all kinds of activity, mostly sexual, sexually perverse activity, incest, unnatural sex is oftentimes mentioned. Okay, so if you haven't gotten the picture yet, witches were thought to be very sexually promiscuous, and that's putting it mildly. However, they also had powers given to them by the devil, and flying isn't the only thing that witches were empowered to do. 
once they enter into the contract with the devil, then they can do all sorts of things. They conjure bad weather, you know, there are all kinds of illustrations where they do this weather making, which then brings bad harvests, of course. They cause animals to die or get hurt. They cause human illness. They call infertility, which is very, very important. Impotence, also very important, especially in these cultures where children were so endangered all the time. They engaged in infanticide because they needed these little kids to cook their ointment. And they presented children to the devil at the Sabbath. So a lot of these powers seem to involve children, whether killing them to use in their salve or causing parents difficulty in conceiving at all. It's important to remember that the child mortality rate during these centuries was incredibly high. Most scholars estimate that a third of all children died before the age of nine, and estimates go as high as 50%. Children were incredibly precious not only for passing on bloodlines, but to help around the farm. Since most communities were still rural at this time, more children meant more hands to harvest crops and tend to animals. Children, however, were also more vulnerable to a witch's power, often because the witch could turn out to be their own mother. There are several really interesting stories. Uh, one of them is by a woman named Anna, who in 1580s was accused in France of witchcraft and eventually burned. And she talks of her mother having taken her to the Sabbath. So you have a whole familial relationship. There's mother, daughter, and sometimes you even have granddaughters. And you have family trees where you can see that several generations back there was an accused witch and you can see it going through the family. And Anna talks about her life with her mother. I was talking about being marginalized. She sort of moved with her mother from village to village, which of course in those days was extremely bad and dangerous, because if you were not part of a family unit within a village, you just couldn't support yourself, you didn't have shelter, you didn't have food. So to be there with two women alone moving was suspect already. While the witch was seen as a religious and social menace, it didn't take long for lawyers to reason that witches were a threat to the government as well. It becomes a very interesting and important political issue because Pierre Delancre, this French lawyer, wrote this book, 500 pages, about what's the witch, what does she do, and why is she dangerous. He really believed, and he's not the only one, that witches were dangerous for the body politic, for the state. They affected the economy, they affected the wealth of the people, they affected the health of the people, and therefore the witch was actually a political enemy, not just a somebody who did crazy things. So you can then well imagine that the state rallied to eradicate these people, and in fact they did. Part two. All of this sets the stage for the actual witch trial. Most witches went through a trial. Well, they all went through a trial. Most witches were convicted, and the trial was first of all a religious trial. Pray the Our Father, what are the articles of confession, and so on. And usually they didn't know, what did you do? Did you really make X sick? The Inquisition was always a question that you couldn't really debate. And if you debated it, then your Inquisitor would say, but didn't you go on such and such a day and touch X, and X got sick? 
Well, and then, of course, part of the way that the community dealt with witches was the accusation, oftentimes from their own circle of people, not always from some kind of higher administrators, although that happened too, but oftentimes it came out of the very circle of where these women lived. And you can tell then that the community was very fearful of them. And the community often insisted that a trial take place. Fortunately, for small communities who found themselves with a witch problem, there was a text published in 1487, the very early stages of the witch craze, to help them prosecute the witch. This book was called The Malaeus Maleficarum, or The Witch's Hammer. A guy named Heinrich Institoris wrote this book as a handbook for lawyers to conduct witch trials. He was a Dominican monk, they are called the dogs of God, Dominicanes, Dominicans. And so that was kind of their job description in the church government. And they did it first against heretics. But in uh, 1479, Heinrich Institoris was an inquisitor in southern Germany. And Pope Innocent VIII said, I've heard there are a lot of witches down there. You better go down and write down what is happening. And that's why he writes this witch's hammer. It is in three parts, and it gives you what is a witch, how do you identify her, and then what do you do with her. It's very, very smart legal arguing. He goes into the history, he goes into all the laws, he quotes the Old Testament. Aside from setting up the legal reasoning behind the trial, Heinrich also recounts some of the stories he's heard about these witches to help build his case. And despite the seriousness of this issue, Some of these stories are so bizarre that they're now actually pretty funny to read. So he writes this document, this Maleus Maleficarum, the hammer of the evildoers, the hammer of witches. And uh, he's especially taken, this is... This whole witch phenomena has, of course, as you already can tell, this underlying sexual motive. There's always some sexuality here. And, of course, he has stories in there about men coming to him and saying, the witch took my quote-unquote member away. What am I going to do? And then at one point, a young man comes to a witch and says, I'm looking down my belly and I can't see what I should be seeing. And she said, well, she said... Up there in the tree is a nest, and there are all kinds of these penises, so why don't you choose one? They're all moving around and everything else. And I said, I want this one. And she says, no, you can't have that one. That's the priest's. <laughs> so it's, you know, you, and you can read that in this book. But I said, then it goes in very great detail why it is women that are so prone to witchcraft. They gossip, they have these sexual predilections, they are mean, they can't rule their impulses, and he goes in great detail. And then, as I said, the three parts are very neatly divided. That was a document which is even reprinted and responded to for about 200 years. It's quoted time and time again as an authoritative document. So its effect is massive. Of course, then the book gets into the rules of the trial and the prosecution of the witch. And these rules are horrifying. Just a warning, the following descriptions get a little graphic. He says in there, amongst other things, when you capture the witch, go and send and confess her to her and promise her that she will be forgiven, and then she'll tell you everything, and then you can use it against her. When you have a trial against a witch, carry her into the courtroom so her feet won't touch the ground because she will get strength 
by the contact with the ground because the ground is the devil. And the judge, don't look into the witch's eyes because she will give you the evil eye and you will not be able to prosecute her. Then, of course, there could not be any conviction without a confession. There had to be a confession. Now, of course, she wouldn't confess, yes, I did this, that, and the other thing. So if she didn't confess, she had to be tortured. And torture was part of the legal code of the time. And it had rules. You tortured a person mainly by putting her arms behind her back and pulling her up so her feet wouldn't touch the ground. And then depending how willing she was to confess, you would put weight on her feet. So her arms would be basically moved out of the sockets eventually. You could do that three times legally. And if she didn't confess, you were supposed to take her down, bring her away, and maybe do it again the next time. But we weren't supposed to go longer than that. Now, most people, of course, would, would confess. If the witch confessed at that point, that was not valid. She had to be taken down, removed from this scene of torture, and then confess again, because the confession had to be of her own free will. So you can see how this is all loaded against her. Unfortunately, in the late 1590s, as the witch craze spread, the rules of torture were suspended. In legal terms, witchcraft became what is called an exceptional crime, like treason or killing the king. And you can not only torture until confession, you can torture children below 14 and 12 years of age, which you couldn't do. And you can ask for witnesses that are not of good character, which never used to be the case. So, so you see the whole legal environment changing around the witch. However, these are just the official rules. Whether or not they were actually followed in small towns or villages is another matter. Professor Williams shares the contents of an incredibly rare letter from an accused witch to her husband, which hints at the kind of treatment the accused witches might actually have faced at the hands of their captors. There's one case where the woman eventually gets burned, but she is able to write a letter to her husband out of prison, which we have so few, I mean, tiny, tiny amount of these documents. And she says to her husband, I'm not guilty. But the way they have dealt with me, and I do believe in God, and God will save me, and all that, but the way they have dealt with me, I will never again be able to be with you as a woman with a man. So you can kind of figure out what happened to her. Given the sexual undertones of the trials, I suppose I shouldn't be as surprised as I am, but the truth is still hard to stomach. This leads to the final part of the trial, execution. She is then taken from the church authorities to the secular authorities to execute. Because, of course, the church said, thou shalt not kill, so the killing is done by the secular authorities. And she's usually killed by burning at the stake. If she's lucky, she gets beheaded before that, so she won't feel the burning. But usually they put a little bag of powder under her throat and then that would explode and then she would burn. The burning was actually part of a purifying ritual because it felt if she confessed before her death and she was then burned, then her soul was purified and she may actually get into heaven, which of course for those people was a really, really big issue. As time went on in these witch trials, 
Men and even children were accused of witchcraft. However, those trials look very different than the cases brought against women, which start to take on a very particular tone. The further you go in the witch trials, the younger the persecuted witch becomes. Men, you can't have really rules. All kinds of men were accused, and they were oftentimes, for example, accused of sodomy or bestiality. So, you know, that's a sort of a different, little bit of a different phenomenon. But women were just totally objectified and totally oppressed, of course. They couldn't have a will. They couldn't have their own property. They were to obey their father, then their husband. But they always thought the women, because of their very nature, and I repeated that several times, was so hard to rein in. They talked, for example, in The Secrets of the Spinning Room. There were all these women all around, spinning, spinning, spinning. No man was around, and they would tell each other these tales, and the feeling was they were living in a world that the men really didn't have access to. When you read trial transcriptions, that's exactly what you hear. I want to know what you experienced at the Sabbath. So you can see the male judge entering into the psyche of the woman and the physicality of the woman because they wanted to know something they really couldn't know. So at all points you have the woman who's powerless all of a sudden endowed in their minds with the power that has to be eradicated. And that went on for yeah, 200 years. The last one in, in German-speaking country was killed in 1782 and it was a classic witch trial, absolutely classic. So what finally ended the witch craze? Was it a reevaluation of the place of women in the society? Was it a quieting of the religious unrest? Did belief in witches start to wane as science grew? What brought it to an end was one very simple thing. There was a man named Friedrich von Spee, who was a Jesuit, in fact, so 1650s or so. And there were others. There were other voices along the way, even parallel to somebody like the Maleos. I think there were other people who said, you're nuts. These women are demented. They need to be prayed over. They need to be counseled. They don't need to be burned. I mean, there was a lot of that discussion going on. But Friedrich von Spee just then came at the right time. He simply said, not because we don't believe in witches. Yes, we do. As long as we believe in God, we also believe in witches. You cannot prove it in a court of law. The end was really a legal argument. You cannot prove something occult in a court of law. And in the end, that made the day. Part three. Like the Malayus Maleficarum, we have asked Professor Williams to explain what the witch is and how she was dealt with. But for the third part of this podcast, I think my final question is, how did this happen? Let's pull back again and look at Europe as a whole. The witch phenomenon as we know it now, as I said, from 1480 to 1700, it starts in southwest Germany, which is now kind of southern France, Switzerland, and southwest Germany, Stuttgart, around in this area. People have spilled a lot of ink to figure out exactly why, but in the end, it is really a question that cannot in the last certainty be answered. Why there and why all of a sudden? If you recall, the author of The Witch's Hammer was from southern Germany as well. And there's a moment here, a tantalizing glimpse of how the whole phenomenon might have gone. So, at the Pope's behest, 
Heinrich. And so he goes to Innsbruck. He's asked to come to Innsbruck, and there are eight women he identifies as witches. And the bishop of Innsbruck said, "No, no, no, no. We're not doing that. You go home. I'm in charge here. We're not doing." That. And so this is right there. It stopped right there, even in in the early stages, but not for long. There come other accusations, and then you have pretty much immediately. Events like a whole village goes crazy and accuses one person, and they accuse each other, and a number of women are then executed. You have sermons preached about witches, Hexenpredigten, the witches' sermons. You have all kinds of reports. So all of a sudden, it kind of makes it into the population, and even in a population that doesn't have TV or internet or anything else, word gets around fairly quickly. Though the witch craze crossed Europe. Not every country responded to it the same way. From there, sort of, not in waves, but in spots here and there. It went to France. It went to the Basque Country, Scotland. Scotland had very virulent witch persecutions. Sweden had very virulent ones later in the 17th century. There were very violent persecutions of children in Sweden. England less so. And England didn't burn. England hanged most of the time. Italy hardly any. So you know you cannot just say it was all over Europe. No, it wasn't. And you could live in something like you could live in St. Louis and have a virulent persecution, and Kansas City would have nothing, because Europe was very much divided up in parcels and legal authorities and political authorities, and it always depended how the government was going to deal with that. As Professor Williams mentioned earlier, many scholars have tried to answer the question of why. Why did the witch phenomenon catch hold and persist for so long? The answer, of course, is complicated. There was a lot of religious unrest in the 16th century. You may have heard about the Anabaptists, the Radical Reformation, and they were often accused of the same crimes as witchcraft, especially the women. So the women started preaching among the radical reformers, and that was, of course, an absolute no-no. And she had to be possessed by the devil. And so you see the language of witchcraft accusation creeping into the language of religious accusation. Aside from social and religious unrest, remember that Columbus discovered America at this time too. So the world around these people is drastically changing. And scholars now know that even the climate played a role. A very, very interesting finding of a researcher named Bellinger about 10, 15 years ago. Between 1580 and 1620, you had a real change in weather in Europe. You had what then and now is called the Little Ice Age. You had very bad weather, very cold weather, which, of course, the consequences in a rural society, which these were, was the crop failure. When women for a long time are malnourished, they stop menstruating. When they stop menstruating, they don't conceive children. The children they do conceive are very small, die very early. So all of a sudden, you have a natural phenomenon, which is true and can be proven, contributing to these witch accusations. The witch persecutions go in waves, and between 1580 and 1620, you have really some of the worst. And then I said all the time, time and time again, because they are women. Professor Williams is also interested in witch hunts that still happen today, like the not too distant McCarthy era during the Cold War. She says there are certain characteristics that underlie any witch hunt. 
the unquestioned belief in some kind of ideology. For example, thou shalt not suffer the witch to live out of the Old Testament. And in the McCarthy area, it was communists and they were the devil. And you can see that in any persecution of any minority, the whole thing is always articulated almost in the same way. They are a danger to our government. They are affecting our women oftentimes. They cannot be controlled except by silencing them and doing away with them, putting them in prison or executing them or something. The march is always the same. What is also interesting, if you ever look carefully at the way we, all of us, report on the activity of sects, like religious sects and everything else. I'm thinking about the one in Texas years ago. Waco? Yes, Waco. And there were others since. There's invariably sexual accusations, invariably child abuse, invariably young girls being forced to marry old men or something. Not that I'm saying these sects didn't do some things they shouldn't have done. I'm not saying that. But the vocabulary and the description and the realization, the way we look at it and the way it's reported in the press is always very, very much following a certain kind of pattern, I would say. And that is what I always find interesting. Many thanks to Gerhild Williams for taking the time to meet with me. And Thanks to you, too, for tuning in to Hold That Thought. If you're interested in reading more of Professor Williams' research on witchcraft, you can check out her book, Defining Dominion, The Discourses of Magic and Witchcraft in Early Modern France and Germany. Have thoughts of your own after today's podcast? Drop us a line on Facebook or Twitter, and I hope you all have a happy Halloween. Halloween.